like the idea that anything a woman does is good because she's a woman, you know, mm. and the problem, the reason it's white feminism is because that mindset where you're only considering the gender aspect and you're not considering all the other ways that somebody's identity might impact how they exist in the world. Um, it privileges white women because white women already ha are operating at an advantage, you know? Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we talked to sports journalist Natalie Weiner about her column, The Double-Edged Sword of Women's Empowerment. It's about the National Women's Hockey League and Barstool Sports. Also, I have choice words about the Super Bowl's woke capitalism and a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down award that goes to the same damn person. But first, Natalie Weiner. Every week in her Good Form column, this journalist explores the ways in which the sports world's structural inequalities and injustices illuminate those outside it and the ways in which they're inextricably connected. And you certainly do that, Natalie, with this column, The Double-Edged Sword of Women's Empowerment. Congratulations on a really stirring, strong argument. Really appreciated the column. Thank you. That means a lot. I mean, obviously, it's like with that kind of mission statement, you know, I, this is like well-trodden territory, you know, like this is kind of, you know, what what other journalists like you and plenty of other people have been doing for a long time. But it's definitely a cool opportunity that they've been letting me do that in a consistent way. No, it's it's terrific stuff. And we'll put out the link, of course, so people can read all the columns you've done. But I was thinking I wanted to do this interview a little differently. I was thinking about some of my listeners, a lot of whom aren't are, are like political people who may not necessarily be into sports. And so I'm hoping like I can just ask you some really basic questions. Is that OK? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like I'm actually I'm, I'm thinking about members of my family who listen to this podcast. <laughs> That's what I'm really doing. Um, who know nothing. No offense. <laughs> OK, so. What is, how would you explain what, as a definitional term, what is, quote unquote, white feminism slash being a girl boss? What does that mean? I mean, so white feminism is kind of feminism as it's been conventionally understood for, I don't know, I'd say from like 1995 to 2015, you know, I think that's kind of the, like the most mainstream, like the idea that anything a woman does is good because she's a woman, you know? Mm -hmm. And the problem, the reason it's white feminism is because that mindset where you're only considering the gender aspect and you're not considering all the other ways that somebody's identity might impact how they exist in the world, um, it privileges white women because white women already ha are operating at an advantage, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you're only thinking about gender, the gender binary as like a source of inequality, then you're naturally going to be looking at the successes of white women a lot more because white women are kind of like operating from, from an advantage, if that makes sense. And so the girl boss part is sort of the celebration of that kind of success in a very like conventional, like, hey, I got a job. I am like literally a boss, you know? 
Um, it was the term was coined by this woman whose name I'm forgetting now, but she ran a clothing brand called Nasty Gal. And she just kind of made a big deal about how like she started this clothing company from the ground up and she's a CEO and she's a woman and she can do it all, you know, and it's just this sort of like this idea of success that's really contingent on like capitalist metrics of success. Uh, I believe like, her name was Sophia Amoruso. Right, right. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so so these two things are sort of intertwined because it's kind of a concept of feminism that's based on succeeding in the world as it currently exists. You know, it's kind of acknowledging existing hierarchies and say like saying that women, if they can succeed within them, have done something good, no matter how much inequality they may have perpetuated in the process. Mm. Yeah, you wrote, this is a quote, I'm quoting you to you, you wrote, to fully realize your own liberation, you must be extraordinary. And the only proof of that status is in the money you've earned attaining it. Right. So that's also a really shallow way of, of trying to understand, like, what is progress? Right, right, exactly. It's, it's because it's so one dimensional, because it's like, woman or man, good or bad, <laughs> success or failure, you know, it doesn't have any kind of sense of like, well, what does this mean at large? You know, what, what does it mean when a woman like Sheryl Sandberg, you know, starts touting feminist rhetoric? <laughs> like, where, where is the real benefit in that for a lot of people besides Sheryl Sandberg? I, we don't know. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's that monetary thing. And I think the interesting thing with this story in particular is that Erica Nardini definitely uses that. You know, she's like, well, I'm really successful and I have a lot of followers and I'm the CEO of this company and I make a bajillion dollars. So I must be a better person than you or better at being a woman than you or something, you know? Oh, we'll get to Erica Nardini. <laughs> um, but, but before we take that leap, you also said something in the article that I thought was was re really interesting. And I wanted to ask you, do you think too much when we talk about the, the status of women in the sports world. We frame just the fact of women playing sports as an empowering act in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Can you For talk sure. a little bit, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the primary impetus for this column. Actually, it's something I've been wanting to write about for a really long time because like the more I got into women's sports, the more I saw how they were kind of used as a tool rather than kind of anybody considering the sports as valuable in and of themselves, you know, or like the women's skills who were playing them. It's kind of like, well, this is good because it shows like young girls that women can do things, you know, and mm -hmm. it kind of, it's simultaneously like patronizing to those people who watch it. Like maybe I just like watching women's basketball because it's fun to watch women's basketball, not because it's like ethical, you know? Um, and it also just kind of, again, it, it's, it makes this thing one dimensional. Um, and I think it's like, it also, you know, emphasizes a gender binary that we're sort of increasingly seeing is going to be a really big problem when it, in the sports world. Um, like I'm actually wearing a shirt right now um, that was designed by this, a woman who has a company called Playa Society and like a bunch of WNBA players have worn this shirt and it says female athlete like over and over and over again, but the female is crossed out, you know? And I think like mm. it says at the bottom, it says judged by achievements, not by gender, 
you know, and that's what women athletes want. You know, they don't want people to be like, wow, it's so wild that women are doing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just want to be thought about as athletes first and foremost. And I think like the shirt's great and it really um, kind of sums up basically what I tried to put in this essay in like five words, you know? Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of, it's bad for a lot of the reasons I articulate in the piece, but it just kind of, it emphasizes difference um, in a way that I think is ultimately bad, <laughs> you know, like I, it makes women's sports seem like a fundamentally different thing when, as we know, like gender is a social construct. And so why are we leaning into it when it comes to sports, which have more power than anything else to show us why it's a social construct, you know? Mm. That's yeah, that, that's real talk right there. So Again, I'm, I'm, I want to have this conversation for folks who are really kind of out of the sports loop. So mm -hmm. I, I shall ask you, can you explain to our listeners what, what in the holy hell Barstool Sports is? <laughs> I mean, so Barstool is a website that's been around for uh, probably 20 years now, almost, I think. Um, started as a blog just in Boston, surprise. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's run a coincidence, by, I swear. Right, right. Um, you know it started as being very much like white guys, like growing out together and posting pictures of scantily clad women who they found attractive and being generally just kind of like racist, sexist, homophobic in ways that are, that they thought were funny. You know, the idea is that it's like a humor website, but it's just kind of using humor as an excuse to be bigoted. <laughs> um, and it's grown exponentially in the past five to 10 years. Um, and now it does have a somewhat more inclusive roster of quote unquote talent. Um, they actually do employ women now, including their CEO, who's kind of the focus of this column. But the overall tone is still very much like where we, you know, it's, it is the MAGA tone without most of the explicit Trumpiness, although they did sell MAGA hats on their site. Um, it, it's definitely like, wow, cancel culture is coming for us because like we just want to make jokes and have fun. And like, you know, it's just funny to say like sexist and racist and homophobic stuff. And it's it, they do it in an increasingly subtle and insidious way. It, because they have received a lot of criticism over the years for all of the reasons. I mean, you just have to Google like Barstool, you know, mm -hmm. controversy and you'll come up with 5 million things. Um, and as they've grown, they've kind of uh, swept some of the most obvious offensive stuff under the rug and have just leaned into a more tonal like MAGA vibe if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and they still, as they've made this quote-unquote uh, transition to being more inclusive and broader-based and, and all the rest of it, they still incorporate this practice where if you criticize them, they put mm -hmm. your info out there for the purposes of getting harassed right. by their followers, who for them that's like part of the fun of being in the Barstool community, is how do we kick down as hard as possible on our critics, yeah, particularly yeah. if they happen to be women or people of color. So they, yeah, and, and so much so that I feel like I just want to tell you, and I, I, I wanted our listeners to know this too, just to give you how seriously I take this. We're not even going to put Barstool in the title of this podcast. 
It's just going to be like Natalie Weiner on the girl on the contradictions of the girl boss or something like that. Yeah. Uh, because I don't want it to pop up and have people be, you know, that it's just like, it's almost like a non-responsible journalistic practice to put red meat in front of their faces. <laughs> it's, that is true. And I think like for me, at least, um, I've kind of been in their crosshairs enough that I think I'm almost immune just basically because I've blocked like every single person who works <laughs> for them. Um, so they like can't look at my tweets and, you know, get offended by the fact like, you know, get offended by valid criticism, you know, which is kind of their thing. Um, it's like, but yeah, they it is again, and as somebody who has been at the center of MAGA wrath and at the center of barstool wrath, like they are identical, you know, like the MAGA one is bigger for sure, because there are a lot more MAGA people, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> but it's the same tactic. It's like, Oh my gosh, like it, just the idea of like, they call it body bagging. And that's like what Portnoy, who's the founder, who's awful and regularly appears on Tucker Carlson. Um, like, mm -hmm that's his thing. He's like, we got to body bag anybody who criticizes us because, you know, in Barstool universe, there's no valid criticism. There's only, there's only haters and there's only jokes, you know, nothing is real. <laughs> and like no one can ever be really offended except for them. You know, they're yeah, unless you joke the about them, hmm? unless you joke about them. Right. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Their, their grievances are the only serious ones. Everybody else's are made up. <laughs> Wow. So now that we've got all that covered, who is Erica Nardini? Well, she is the CEO. I think she was hired in 2017. I want to say I'm not positive. 2016, 2017. Um, and like she was hired because whatever. I mean, obviously she has some degree of executive experience. I'm not super familiar with it, but she was definitely hired in a moment when Barstool was trying to dramatically expand its business. Um, and attract bigger, more mainstream advertisers. And hiring a woman as a CEO certainly provided them some degree of inoculation from the criticism that they were sexist, which had followed them for a long time. And like, so that's, she has leaned into that idea, hence her podcast, which we'll talk about more, which is called Token CEO. You know, that is literally girl boss. Like, it's the exact words, which made me laugh. So, you know, it's just like, she's like trying to be like, yeah, I know what you think that I'm a woman and a boss, but I am a woman and a boss and this is my brand, you know? Um, but, but yeah, so she like, she kind of came in and was like supposed to be sort of a new era of Barstool, but at the end of the day, not a whole lot has substantively changed about like the values of the site and stuff. And she just kind of leans into the same thing of like, targeted harassment and, you know, kind of putting a guise of inclusivity from a gender and race point of view in, into the site, but like nothing that really has substantively changed the way that they operate. And what is Erica Nardini slash Barstool's relationship with the National Women's Hockey League? Uh, so this is the part that even I am not like I'm not deeply into women's hockey, so this was kind of like a learning thing for me too. But um, Erica Nardini, I guess, is friends with some people who play for the National Women's Hockey League, and she's like had some of them on her podcast in the past and just kind of vocally been like, women's hockey is good, which is like not a super surprising thing when you consider Barstool and its... <laughs> 
focus on like white people in the Northeast where hockey is like enormously popular. Um, and so, you know, it kind of all adds up in that, in that sense. But I guess she just has like kind of vocally like been like, watch the WNH or the NWHL, um, which, you know, whatever, it's not like necessarily a terrible thing. Um, but what happened is when some players recently appeared on her podcast, um, token CEO to, you know, do whatever they were doing, talk about stuff. Uh, some longtime women's hockey writers, um, who it should be noted all have far less power, money, clout, followers, et cetera, than Eric Nardini, um, just were like this doesn't this is not a relationship that we feel comfortable with given barstool's history you know like it it's just unfortunate you know to kind of see as the national women's hockey league kind of fights to be more inclusive you know because as i kind of mentioned hockey has issues with racism in particular Mm -hmm. um to see such a kind of blithe disregard for what the implications of doing anything associated with Barstool might be. Um, And they just raise those concerns, like not tagging her or anything. Um, But that was sort of the dawn of this little moment that we're looking at. Yeah. And and who is, um, I want to get pronounce her name right, Soraya Tinker. Yes. Yes. Soraya? Soraya. I I should double check that, actually. Because, yeah, again, I'm not like number one hockey person. Um, she stood up to this. She said, wait a minute. Yes. Soroya Tinker. Um, yes, she, she was the first player to kind of, well, so first backing up a little bit, what Eric Nardini did when she sort of somehow came across these criticisms from other women's hockey writers, um, she, <laughs> and who knows how she found them because she wasn't tagged. So probably some stoolies as, the fans of the site are called um, tagged her in the comments, which is kind of a common tactic for them. They like to tag people who work for Barstool in any criticism of Barstool so that they might get attention from the people they're like obsessed with. It's very sad. But um, anyway, so Erica came across these comments and rather than ignore them, which any sane person would do if you are really rich and whatever, you know, or maybe, consider them thoughtfully she decided to make basically a hit video (laughs) compiling screen caps of Mm. all of these tweets and then you know not blurring out identifying information and share it with her followers and just basically being like look like you guys are being sexist against me basically (laughs) by criticizing my you know relationship with these NWHL people and like I have just as much of a right to do this as anybody else and you are like basically turning twisting the whole thing around and being like anybody who criticizes Barstool and my affiliation with Barstool is actually sexist and not being inclusive you know um which is very wild but yes so the result of this as Erica basically wanted was that all the writers who had criticized the players you know, participation in her podcast were harassed endlessly by Barstool people. Um, And that can lead to doxing, that can lead to threats. You know, it's just kind of, they like to act like it's inconsequential, but anybody who's been through it knows that it's not 
Um, mm. And again, it's like they didn't really do anything <laughs> to justify that kind of treatment, but this is just barstool tactics. So Soraya Tinker, Soraya, oh my gosh, I am just, it's really early. It's earlier here, so <laughs> I'm, I'm in Dallas. Um, okay. So it's 9.20, so I'm giving myself a little bit of leeway. But Please do. Soraya Tinker, <laughs> she was the first NWHL player to kind of speak up defending these writers who are dogged advocates of a league that is by no means established, you Mm -hmm. know, that has fought for survival for a long time. And so it's not like there's a lot of glamour and money in writing about women's hockey, you know, like you do it for the love of the game. And so she spoke up to defend these writers saying like, you know, they, there's no reason for this harassment and I don't want the league to be associated with, racism and bigotry in general, you know, which is what associating with barstool sports means, you know, and then, you know, the whole thing really escalated from there because Portnoy, who's like probably the most influential member of the barstool cast of characters kind of took it upon himself to like make a whole little video about her and like, he said that she should be in jail for criticizing Erica Nardini, which is just like, this is one of the very few black members of the NWHL. He's saying she should be in jail. So it's like, this is the kind of intentional tone deafness that is like a barstool trademark. Mm. Um, and it just became fodder for basically an entire week of barstool content you know like they just spent the whole week saying like can you believe anyone would dare criticize erica nardini like that is sexism that is not inclusive the nwhl needs erica nardini to survive which is clearly not the case you know like they're doing they're doing fine and she hasn't done that much to promote it you know um and it all basically ended with them uh talking about starting a barstool women's hockey league starting a new Twitter account with that identity um, and then selling t-shirts that were themed based around the controversy. So ultimately this is profitable for them right. to stir up these kinds of uh, things and with blithe disregard for anyone who might, you know, be hurt in the process, like all of these hockey writers and Soroya who, you know, was just harassed endlessly. Like, I can't even imagine what she dealt with, you know, like just because being kind of the most visible face of this. So, so now, yeah. yeah, now, now, but don't you think, um, or I guess, do you think that even though Barstool has used this as basically a content mill for their own publicity and sell merchandise mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, that there's something politically significant about the NWHL statement in terms of standing up to them? I, think I mean, does that, is that going to matter? Are we going to maybe look back at that as maybe a little bit of a fork in the road in terms of their effort to gain mainstream respectability? I would like to think that. I'm not sure that, unfortunately, the NWHL has quite enough clout to, like, make disowning Barstool, like, a mainstream thing. Uh, excuse me. Um, but, yeah, I think... It was an okay statement, although it didn't really name names in the way that you would maybe hope, you know. Um, it didn't specifically call out Nardini. It didn't specifically call out Barstool. Um, it just kind of tried. It, it 
made it clear that they weren't okay with what was happening without being super explicit, which, you know, in some ways makes sense, but I think could have been stronger. Uh, and I think there is like an internal women's hockey divide that this also plays into that I'm really less familiar with the dynamics of. There's another women's hockey league yeah. that kind of formed um, in at a counterpoint to the National Women's Hockey League that's kind of filled with more women who kind of follow the Erica Nardini <laughs> model and, you know, this like girl boss white feminism model. Mm. And they there are plenty of players who were supportive of Nardini like during this whole thing in spite of the very the glut of evidence that showed she was instigating all of it basically you know um and so that's pretty concerning if hockey that's like probably the most concerning aspect of all of it if hockey really wants to be serious about combating racism within its ranks mm. wow well natalie you've been so great about explaining this um and understanding it well do you, the recently is interesting. You saw someone like Mark Cuban wearing a bar stool. We're going to talk about later yeah. in the show, wearing a bar stool sports hoodie and whatnot. Um, looking ahead in the future, is this the is this going to be like the future of a lot of sports commentary? This kind of aggrieved, uh, I guess I'd call it white noise, or do you yeah. think enough athletes are gonna and fans are gonna stand up to this going forward, or is is this like going to be just something that gets grows bigger with time that metastasizes if you will i think it i i feel like it'll remain a vocal minority you know what i mean i think that unfortunately i don't know there's a benefit to the fact that barstool's not super mainstream in that like a lot of people just don't know what it is you know like you had me like explain and stuff or if they've consumed barstool content they've done it without really being familiar with the people who make it you know what I mean I think a lot of people just kind of come across their stuff on the internet without necessarily like being super fans <laughs> um so I do think that that mentality is a minority but it is vocal and that doesn't mean it's not harmful and I mm. think stuff like Cuban um Cuban wearing that hoodie I mean especially since he kind of presents himself as the people's billionaire or whatever, you know, it's like, what are you doing? You know, like what, what, I mean, frankly, like, what does he have to gain from supporting Barstool? You know, like he's more powerful than Barstool. So that sort of was confusing to me. Um, I think, I kind of think their moment in the mainstream sun has passed a little bit. You know, there was the moment when like they almost had an ESPN partnership and mm -hmm. like, some other stuff, you know, a few years ago, it seemed a little more likely that we were in the middle of the dawn of the mainstreaming of Barstool than we are now. Um, but I think this, this kind of idea of feminism that Erica Nardini epitomizes is definitely a very toxic and present force in women's sports, you know? Um, I think a lot of athletes um, are, are kind of tied into it. You know, they believe that kind of idea that like, because sports sort of <clears throat> are tied to it in the sense that like you play sports, 
you think like you deserve to be where you are because you worked really hard, right? Like that's like the idea of sports, the level playing field, like you're successful because of your specific skill and ability and work ethic. And like, that doesn't leave a lot of room for acknowledging systemic inequality, I think for especially a lot of white women. Um, so I, I think the ways in which women's sports culture and the way that it's promoted, this like empowerment discourse, this kind of gender above all else um, idea, I think we're gonna see increasing factionalization among women athletes, the people who think barstool is fine, it, and that's just like a symptom of their general thinking, <laughs> and the people like many of the players of the WNBA who are incredibly progressive and kind of leading the charge when it comes to fighting for social justice, if that makes sense. I think there is a divide in women's sports there, and it will only become more obvious. Mm. Natalie Weiner, I'd, I'd, this has been really, really evocative. Thank you so much. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what music you're listening to these days, <laughs> so we could be updated that on that. I mean, well, I just moved to Texas, so I have been listening to a lot of country music, which I was already a fan of, but have just been leaning into that. Charlie Crockett is great. Um, he's been he's been on the playlist a lot recently. So nice. Dallas is so you're in Dallas now. I am in Dallas now. Yes. Is that, is that treating you well? Do you like it there? I do like it here. Um, we're in the middle of some very inclement weather, which is not really what I bargained for when I moved south. But otherwise, the city has been has been cool so far. I'm excited because I'm actually a lot closer to a lot of women's sports, not with the WNBA team, not just with the WNBA team, but um, just women's college sports. There's some really big programs around here. So that's exciting. Great food scene in Dallas, too, if you can find it out. Yeah, I've only begun to scratch the surface, but awesome. I'm pretty excited. Very cool. Natalie, I really do appreciate the time. I'm go we're going to really push everybody how, uh, to, to read your stuff. How, how can people become more acclimated to your work? Um, I mean, I have my Twitter, obviously. It's just my name, um, Natalie Weiner. And I do have a website that's nataliewiner.com. I am freelance right now, but I have a weekly column at fanbite.com, um, just like we talked about earlier, talking about sports and culture and all that stuff. Okay, fantastic. Natalie Weiner, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's terrific. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the Super Bowl that was. Okay, look, I'm not going to talk to you about Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. 
I'm going to talk to you about the conversation that we need to have about the NFL's use of woke marketing or woke capitalism or whatever you want to call it before the weight of its contradictions causes us to collectively crack. What the NFL did on Sunday was dare the viewing public to sweep away the buffalo wings from their tables and proclaim the entire endeavor to be a snarling pack of lies. Just take a cursory look about what the league served up on Super Bowl Sunday. We had a Lollapalooza of black talent on display. I'm not not even talking about the game itself. There was Grammy Award winning artist Her doing a shredded version of America the Beautiful. There was future legendary songstress Jasmine Sullivan co-singing the national anthem like only she can. There was Viola Davis narrating a short documentary about one of the integrators of the NFL, Kenny Washington. They left out that the experience for Washington was so harrowing that he said, if I have to integrate heaven, I don't want to go. They had the gall to include a clip of Colin Kaepernick in that tribute with no mention that he has been exiled from the league for protesting racist police violence during the anthem. There was The weekend performing the halftime show, doing whatever it is The weekend does. And there was Amanda Gorman blessing us with a poem about the courage of frontline workers during the pandemic. What an array of talent. What a ghastly lie. This is a league that remains racially segregated between those with power and those who play. In a sport that is so deeply dependent on black talent, black bodies, and the concussive destruction of black minds, there are still only three black coaches. There are only a handful of black executives. There are no black franchise owners. The sidelines of the Super Bowl were themselves an exposure of these segregationist practices as Tampa Bay offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich, as well as their defensive coordinator Todd Bowles and Kansas City's OC Eric Bieniemy, are on the outside of the NFL coaching carousel looking in, even though they prove themselves almost every week to be the best at what they do. Todd Bowles should have been the game's MVP for the way Tampa Bay's defense shut down the most explosive offense of our time. These coaches are like a blaring, blinking billboard reminding us of the gap between the performative presentation of the NFL and the reality of how they do business. Then there is the case making its way through the courts about the ways that former black players are being assessed for compensation in a class action settlement regarding concussions. These athletes are having a hard time getting paid because the suit contends the NFL's guidelines for assessing concussions includes a practice plucked from the 19th century called race norming, where the baseline mental capacity of black players is deemed lower than white players and therefore entitled to fewer benefits. Crudely, race norming contends that concussions won't hurt black athletes as much because they weren't very sharp to begin with. It's ugly as sin, and the case, which has been making its way through the courts for months, is only now getting a window of publicity because of the Super Bowl. Now, the NFL is not the only business to use woke marketing while hiding an ugly underbelly. To appeal to a younger generation that is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance, most businesses play by the quote-unquote Brooklyn Without Limits playbook. That's a 30 Rock reference. Y'all can look it up. But it is difficult to think of an institution that does it more ruthlessly than the NFL. Celebrating black voices while stymieing black opportunity and destroying black minds is hardly the best look. So they make this grand effort to portray themselves as something they are not. The gap between what they put forward publicly and the reality of their Jim Crow business practices can no longer be ignored. 
The question is whether this league will be able to endure the weight of these contradictions for much longer without actually engaging in real systemic change. Now, people inside the league offices have told me that these performative displays are part of trying to turn the page towards a more enlightened future. They say that the league is changing and that progress takes time. I pondered that calculus at the start of Sunday's game, and then the Kansas City Chiefs' racist war chant was piped through the stadium sound system. This league isn't changing. They're only becoming more effective at fake representation and false promises. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up. Stand up. And just sit your ass down. and Sit your ass down. Guess what? It goes to the same dude. Dallas Mavericks franchise owner Mark Cuban, who stood up for about 15 minutes and then sat his ass down. It was a self-inflicted Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. As Mark Cuban literally sat his own ass down by proclaiming allegiance to standing up. Let me explain. It was just recently noticed that the Dallas Mavericks haven't been playing the national anthem before their games. As one might imagine, the response was not exactly tepid, especially from the right-wing blathosphere. Yet immediately following a comment from the league offices, the pugnaciously outspoken franchise owner Mark Cuban buckled like a belt. The team issued a statement that the anthem would play. And when NBA Vice President Michael Bass was asked about Cuban's move, he said, With NBA teams now in the process of welcoming fans back into their arenas, all teams will play the national anthem in keeping with longstanding league policy. And with that, Cuban was done playing the billionaire rebel. Cuban's truncated effort to spike the Star-Spangled Banner is, of course, a response to players kneeling during the anthem to protest police violence, as well as to new critiques about the racism rooted in both the anthem's origins and in the verses that we do not sing. On this issue over the last several years, Cuban has been mercurial as ever, criticizing players for kneeling in 2017, but saying even more recently, as recently as last June, If players were taking a knee and they were being respectful, I'd be proud of them. Hopefully, I'd join them. That's quite a swing. And now Cuban, who has never balked at taking the big swing, kiboshed the anthem altogether. In terms of his motivation, Cuban told the Dallas Morning News, During our games, most people don't even show up for the anthem. I wanted to see if anyone noticed. No one said a word. He also said, Some don't even stand. I would rather not play it if people won't respect it, and I would rather not play it if it's going to be used as a weapon when people disagree with what it represents. This was a correct decision. The United States is actually one of the few countries on Earth that plays its national anthem before non-national sporting events. Its origins lie in the world wars of the 20th century, 
The idea was that the anthem would play during the wars and then stop during times of peace. But with the start of the Cold War following World War II, it continued, a cultural marker that the United States should see itself on a perpetual state of war footing. The hyper-conservative, staunchly anti-labor sports owners of the 1950s also saw playing the anthem before their games as savvy marketing as they attempted to make a buck on the anti-communist hysteria of the times. Then in the aftermath of 9-11, performing the anthem became a bombastic ritual of support for the troops, law enforcement, and our forever wars. Major League Baseball even took to playing two anthems after 9-11, the Star-Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful, something the NFL and other sports leagues do as well. Well, we are in a decisively new era, broken from the post-9-11 rituals of easy-to-demonize external enemies of the United States. Call it the Kaepernick era, a time when players use the space of the anthem to, to showcase dissent in the face of racialized state violence. Or call it the post-Trump era, a time when an army of white supremacist enemies have emerged from within, taking the flag and using it as a justification for their own brand of sedition. There could be a right-wing motivation for stopping the anthem. You stop the anthem, you stop the player protests. But that didn't seem to be where Cuban was coming from. He seemed willing to dispense with the entire ritual, but clearly he could not take the heat. It's a damn shame. We don't show our allegiance to flag and country before a movie or a concert. Why should this be some kind of compulsory act before sports? A sporting event is one of the few times outside of a protest where you feel a sense of united energy with the thousands of people around you. It's escapism and welcome fun. But in recent years when that anthem plays, some people sit, some take a knee, some escape to the bathroom, and some stand. It's become a symbol of how disunited we all are. That's not because of Kaepernick. That's because of police officers who have shredded the Constitution and used violence under a cover of patriotism to enforce their will against brown and black communities across this country. We are disunited because, as Chris Hayes wrote, paraphrasing Du Bois, we operate as a colony within a nation. Compulsory patriotism isn't really patriotism at all. And as long as there is this yawning gap between what we're told this country stands for and the lived experiences of millions of Americans, that anthem should collect dust. For a brief moment, it looked like Cuban would be the franchise owner to say enough is enough, but he couldn't take the weight. Cuban likes to affect the persona of the billionaire rebel, but other than some hot air, it doesn't seem to amount to much. That's the problem with being a walking contradiction. One side eventually wins out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to Natalie Weiner for joining us. Thank you so much to everybody out there who's been listening to the show. We've been getting great response from the recent programs. Uh, for everybody out there listening, remember, in your head, if you love this show, David Tigabu, producer extraordinaire, he helps make this happen and mix it up. So when you put me in your prayers in the evening for this podcast, include us both. Uh, if you like the podcast and you want to support it, good knows, good Lord knows we need the support. So go to patreon.com slash edge of sports pod. That's patreon.com slash edge of sports pod. And you could actually support the work that we do. Uh, also, you can reach me anytime, anytime over t the Twitters at edge of sports. Happy to answer your questions. 
For everybody out there listening, mask up and please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.